here to Grace Fellowship, members, visitors. Uh, happy Father's Day to all our fathers. I am um, thankful for the privilege. I'm thankful to be able to have my father with us today. Um, we believe that the father is the leader of the home and as such has been given a great task, a great responsibility, and plays a great role uh, in the body of our church, in the family, in the lives of people. And so what better way to celebrate uh, Father's Day than to look at the Word together. So please open your Bibles this morning. We're going to continue our journey through Romans. Chapter 4 will be in verses 18 through 22. So as you're turning, let's set our context for today. And you'll notice we're very intentional to do this week after week. We stop and we kind of introduce the text as it stands in the context of the overall book. Now, we do this because each of these messages are not a standalone point. The text isn't a random collection of words that we get to drive by and just hang the ideas we want to on. The letter of Romans, and more broadly, the entirety of the Bible, is a single literary unit. And so in order to understand this book of Romans, we have to understand how each of these arguments fits together, right? How each of the pieces come together and make a larger and larger puzzle. So, let's review. Paul began his discourse in Romans chapter 1 with the wholesale condemnation of mankind. And then he kept going in chapter 2. And then he kept going, in case if there was any doubt, on into chapter 3. All of mankind stands condemned. So it kind of reminds me in a way, uh, is anybody out there familiar with the you get a car internet meme? Yes? No? Okay. It's, it's kind of internet famous. It's from the old Oprah Winfrey talk show, which I do not recommend in any way. I want to make that clear. Um, but she decided she was going to give every single member of her studio audience a car as a gift just for being in her audience. And so she had the audience open these little packages, and inside was a set of keys. And some of the audience members got it immediately. They were jubilant. They were excited. They said, yeah. But as she looked around, other audience members were kind of stunned. They were distraught. They were like, does everybody in here really get a car? And so then, as to remove all doubt, Oprah has her internet fame moment, right? She starts walking around the room and pointing. You get a car, and you get a car, and you get a car. Everyone gets a car. And it's... And if you, if you Google that, everyone gets a car is, is a big meme. But the first three chapters of Romans, Paul wants to remove any doubt as to what's happening, right? And while there is some levity in Oprah's car giveaway, the condemnation of the first three chapters of the book of Romans is quite real. And without Christ, it should leave us in a state of utter desperation. It says, you stand condemned. You lawless heathens stand condemned. You moral people stand condemned. You outwardly religious stand condemned. Everyone stands condemned. But praise God for the good news of verse 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 24, where we get a turn, right? We learn that one might be justified. One might escape this condemnation by God's grace as a gift through the redemption of Jesus Christ. Not by working hard enough, not by cleaning yourself up enough, or not by the approval of fallible man. Our working leads only to death, but there is a gift. The work completed by the Holy One of Heaven in Jesus that is offered to us. Justification to be made right before a holy God through faith. And so, woe there, Paul, the Jew of the day might say, this justification 
by faith alone, this radical idea, that's not what God said before. You're making up something new. So to answer the objection, Paul takes Abraham in chapter 4, the great patriarch and founder of the Jewish nation and recipient of the promise of God. And in chapter 4, Paul deconstructs some false views of Abraham. Right? He says, it's not by some resident godliness inside of Abraham that made him better than the Chaldeans he was dwelling amongst. God justifies the ungodly, chapter 4, verse 5. The covenant of circumcision, it didn't make Abraham righteous. He was declared righteous before he was circumcised, verse 10. What of the law? Was God's promise made good on the basis of Abraham keeping the law well enough? Well, no. Because for God to be the one that satisfies the promise, not Abraham, it must come through faith, verse 14. And how could God guarantee that this promise be fulfilled to a race of sinful men? Well, it's because God's the one satisfying the promise. So in verse 17, when God says, I have made you the father of many nations, it is done. So today... We get the good part. We get to the positive, right? Not by works, not by circumcision, not by the law, but how and why was Abraham justified? So, let's look at our text. We're going to go back to verse 17, and let's read together. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Abraham did not, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That that is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. Let's pray together as we look at this word. God, we are thankful that you are the one doing the work. And as we come before you today in prayer, we would have no hope of coming before a God like you, but for the work of Christ received by faith, made good by your mighty hand. Your strong arm is what has accomplished this. And so, God, we just ask that you would make your words clear today. Holy Spirit, that these words would not lie dormant, but that you would take them and press them down to our hearts, to our minds, to our lives, that as we walk, we cannot help but behold the beauty of the way you save today, Lord. Thank you for your words. Amen. All right. So let's begin by making some observations about this text. Starting in verse 18. Abraham believed. It's up here on the title. Belief counted as righteousness. Believed is going to be one of the key words as we move through this. But he believed. What did he believe? That things would just be kind of all right and go generally well with them as long as he went with the flow? No. Verse 18 this is his belief, that he should become the father of many nations, as he has been told, so shall your offspring be. The word of the Lord came to Abraham and gave him this great, seemingly inconceivable promise. 
Do you remember the promise? Let's, let's review. All right, so God told Abraham, his offspring, all his children, their children, the mighty nation he would build would be like the dust of the earth, right? That is, if you could count and number and gather them all up through all of time and you put them in view, they would be so numerous, they would be so vast that like sand in the desert, they would cover the earth as far as the eye can see. Or a bit later, God described this promised offspring like the stars in the sky. Now, all right, so it's important to note here, Abraham's sky probably didn't look like the sky you see in your driveway, right? We have light pollution today. I believe many of you, if you stood in your driveway, you see a sky that's it's well dotted, but it's not insurmountably full of stars. Like, if you spend enough time outside, you might just be able to kind of count them or get a rough approximation. Uh, has, anyone, has anyone secretly thought that when you hear the stars in the skyline? Like, you look up and go, well, from my driveway, like, I might could figure it close. But I can still remember the first time I saw the night sky from a remote location. We hiked up to a shelter on the Appalachian Trail. We were near Mount LeConte. Uh, we were up about 5,000 feet, and there was not a settlement for miles and miles and miles. No houses, no towns, no cars, no cities. And as it happened, nature called in the middle of the night, and I had to answer. And so being that it was bear season, I reluctantly wandered outside just far enough away from the shelter, and my eyes are scanning the tree line constantly. My ears are attuned. Like, if there's a bear out here, i got to get back, and i got to get back quick. And so as I was scanning, I looked up, and I saw a star, and then another, and another, and another. And before I knew it, I looked up, and I beheld a sky I had never seen before. Like, I could recognize some of the same constellations, but there were now hundreds or thousands of stars in between stars I was used to seeing. It was a, in that moment, here's what happened. I wasn't worried about bears anymore. My eyes quit wandering the tree line. I just stopped and beheld the majesty of the sky above. Now put that wonder, put that awe, put that sheer transcendent magnitude into the promise God gave to Abraham. God himself told Abraham that a nation would proceed from your loins so vast, so big, so grand, that it would have the same effect as when one stands outside and beholds the stars in the sky. God is going to put his glory on display, and he's going to do it through your offspring. This is what Abraham believed. It is a wildly outlandish and beautiful promise made by God himself. And so now in verse 18, after believe, we see a strange phrase that follows. We learn that Abraham believed against hope. What hope? What hope is against the promise that Abraham will be the father of many nations? Verse 19, here's what is against it. We see he was about 100 years old with a body as good as dead and a barren wife who was also very old. So make no mistake here, Abraham was not a deluded fool. His hope, insofar as it pertains to natural means, was long gone. He could see his own body and was so far beyond the ability to have children, it was described as being as good as dead. So what that means is his body at 100 years old was about as useful for having babies as a dead person's body would be. Not going to happen. And Sarah, despite her earnestly trying to have children with Abraham for years and years and years, 
She had now aged far past the natural rhythms that give way to childbearing. Not going to happen. So the hope they once had in normative means to bring about a baby now stood against them. The natural processes that give way to offspring were far gone. That is why Abraham, in verse 18, had to believe against hope. So what hope did Abraham have? Verse 18, he says, his belief came in hope. Why on earth would he have any reason to hold on to the idea that he would be a great nation? Because Abraham instead was able to see there was a hope far beyond his own natural abilities. A hope existed that didn't need his vigor. It didn't need his youth. It wasn't bound by the processes of aging. A hope that might be believed against any other hope that would stand. So it's kind of like this. I enjoy chess, and every now and then when I get the opportunity, um, I, I get to watch or play. And One of my favorite players is Hikaru Nakamura. Uh, Hikaru is one of the top players in the world, won tournaments across several continents. Uh, he's kind of a big deal in the chess world. So as a childhood prodigy, Nakamura... He just memorized hundreds, not maybe thousands of games. He can see move sequences and patterns 20 or 30 moves in advance. He can play chess blindfolded, keep track of the pieces in his mind, and beat most of the people on the planet, right? Like, he's really good at chess. So if you told me tomorrow Hikaru Nakamura was coming to Jacksonville, Alabama to play a series of games against me, and my task was to beat him, I had to best this grandmaster in a series of games, I would... I think one thing, I don't stand a chance. I have absolutely zero hope, and if you're a betting, the betting kind, you should take the other guy, no matter what the spread is. Like, he's, he's got this. But if you told me, and instead of facing Hikaru Nakamura alone, I could enlist the help of Stockfish 15, the latest and arguably most powerful computer engine on the planet. You see, it's been over 20 years since the first time uh, Deep Blue was able to beat the then human chess champion. And in those 20 years, computers have advanced by leaps and bounds, right? Nakamura would not stand a chance against a modern chess engine. And now all of a sudden, my situation changes. Have my chess skills improved? Not one bit. Has the game changed in my favor? I mean, I could probably beat him in arm wrestling, like if we could get some physical elements in the chess game. I think I could take him, but no. The game hasn't changed. Instead, I've been given a hope in something beyond my own abilities, beyond what I bring to the table. See, I don't have to be smart enough to beat Nakamura. I never will be. Instead, I can look at the vast computational power of this chess engine and the success it's had just like in brutally dominating some of the best players in the world, and I can say, I think I might have a shot here. So enter the story of Abraham in Romans 4, right? We read back to verse 17 for a reason. Remember what Carlton said last week in those verses? Abraham had a promise from God, and that promise was based on the revelation of the person of God. What does God do? God gives life to the dead, and he calls into existence things that do not exist. No doubt Abraham knew of God's work in creation, in which the entirety of the universe was created out of nothing. Ex nihilo. By the word of God. If God has the power to create the universe, what is it to him to call into existence a people within that universe? He's got it covered. 
What about the way our God gives life to the dead? He formed Adam out of the very dust of the earth. He gathered up a lump of clay and he blew. And what happened? Man was birthed with the soul in the very image of God. If God can make all of humanity with nothing more than a clump of dirt, what's stopping him from using a couple senior citizens to make a nation? Just as stockfish, my chess engine, gave me a certain hope to defeat Nakamura, Abraham looked past the hopeless nature of his natural state and saw God himself the guarantor of the promised offspring and the maker of a mighty nation and knew it was as good as done. He had hope. So this is why we get phrases like verse 20. No unbelief made him waver. He saw the God of hope. Or verse 21. Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he he had promised. How can you be fully convinced? He saw the God of hope and believed. So one last observation I want to make as we're walking through this text is the effect of Abraham's faith. All right, so look at verse 20. It says, Abraham grew strong in his faith. Now, I already know what you're thinking. If you were here last week, right? Wait just a minute. Didn't Carlton stand up here in the very same place last week and talk about faith? Didn't he say it's not the strength of our faith that saves us? He did. Let's revisit quickly what Carlton said. I'm going to read exactly what he said. It's not the quality of our faith that saves us. It's not the power of our faith. It's not the strength of our faith, church, or the amount of our faith that saves us. It is absolutely dependent on what we are placing our faith in that saves us. It's a good word. Do we just contradict ourselves? No, not at all. You see, Carlton is dealing with what saves us. It is the presence or absence of faith in Christ, period. And here in our text today, we're dealing with a natural outflow of the presence of genuine faith. Let me illustrate. So my four-year-old Elijah loves to be helpful as we're making breakfast in the mornings. One of his favorite things to do is to pour our orange juice in. And as a four-year-old, my Elijah opens the refrigerator and pulls the big one-gallon jug of orange juice off the shelf, and it falls. And he saunters over to the table where he swings it up and more or less gets orange juice on the cup, table, floor, wherever it may be. Parents, let your kids pour the orange juice. It'll be okay, I promise. Um, Now, suppose my four-year-old Elijah was now a 16-year-old Elijah. A teenage boy, hopefully full of youth and vigor. What if my 16-year-old struggled to lift the gallon of orange juice out, couldn't lift it and pour a cup without shaking? Something would be wrong. What do we expect? We expect a 16-year-old boy to walk in, sauntering with an attitude, open the door, lift the orange juice, and drink right out of the jug. (laughs) Parents of teenagers, back me up here. right? This is is what we expect from a 16-year-old. But that's why little kids look up to big kids. My four-year-old is looking at him going, he can lift the orange juice with one arm. He's so strong. Right? But what does a four-year-old have to do in order to be able to lift the orange juice as a teenager? Do they start training? Do you find them in their room pumping out reps with little water bottles? (laughs) I hope not. No. 
Part of the normative course of being a kid means your body will grow and do what? Be strengthened. What do you do to make your body grow? Should my four-year-old sit on his bed and focus really hard on making his arm grow so that he can have the right leverage to drink the OJ? Like, no. It's a part of being human. Consider the picture of trees given two weeks ago. We said that faith is like the root of the tree that is planted in the soil. And as the roots draw up nutrients from the good soil, that is Christ, the fruit will come. But can I ask you, have you ever seen a week-old apple tree sapling? They're not very big. What would happen if you took a big, ripe, juicy apple from the store and taped it to the end of a, of a sapling branch? What would happen? It's not going to work. It can't support that kind of fruit. So what happens to every tree as a matter of course? They don't stay a sapling, but they grow. The trunk thickens. They grow higher. The branches grow wider. As long as it is alive, a tree will grow and be strengthened as a matter of course. So do you see, church? We're not talking about what makes you an apple tree or an orange tree, as Carlton was last week. We're talking about what happens to those trees. I want to be very clear on this, right? Jesus gave the parable of the kingdom of heaven, saying it was like a farmer, and he went out and he sold, sowed a field of wheat. And an enemy came at night, and he went and sowed weeds, tares, among his field. I think he sold, sowed dandelions and kutsu, if you're dealing with any of that. Like, I imagine that was part of this really bad stuff in his field. And what did the master say? The master said, okay, let these grow up together into maturity, and then on the day of harvest, what are we going to do? We're going to take the wheat, and we're going to keep it, and the tares, the weeds, will be thrown into the fire and burned. Now, notice the categorical separation, right? This is a separation based on what the thing is. You are either a stalk of wheat or you are a tear. Will all the wheat be the same height? No. The height of the wheat isn't what saves you. Will all of the stalks of wheat produce the same amount of grain? No, the amount of grain produced is not what saves you. It's not the height to which it grows or the amount of grain it produces that makes it a stalk of wheat. It's not as if a weed grows high enough and then the farmer goes, oh, well, that one's pretty high. You better not burn that one. Like, no, it's wheat or a tear. But I can tell you, one thing those wheat seeds are going to do, they're going to grow. They're going to start out as weak as a little sprout looks like it could be pulled down by the tiniest of ants and be strengthened. It's what wheat does. It will grow. It will be strengthened, not as a matter of effort or striving, but it's a matter of wheat being wheat. It's what it does. It grows. And what a glorious word God has given us here, that as a matter of course, genuine faith will grow. It will be strengthened. It's inherent. It is a part of genuine faith, like a child whose arm is strengthened to lift the OJ, like the wheat whose stalk grows hardy to support the head of grain. Your faith will grow in the strength of the Lord. And guess what? And you will trust him more. You will believe on him more. You will treasure the beauty of God's character more. You will rest in the completed work of Christ more. It's what faith does, and it rests on the God who gives the seed. So why is it here? Why even bring up this strengthening effect in our text? Look at verse 19. Abraham did not weaken in faith 
when he looked at the reality of his old age. But instead, verse 20, Abraham was strengthened as he grew strong, as his genuine faith was exercising in glorifying God. We are given a contrast, okay? A man whose natural shot had dwindled, who seemingly had no shot at a natural heir and should just hang it up. I mean, Abraham could rightfully bemoan and despair at his complete and utter inability to bring forth a son with Sarah. The world said, be weakened, capitulate, game over, Abraham, you're done, you're a dead man, and with every breath you draw, you should hope less and less that this would ever come true. But what does faith say? What did Abraham believe? Abraham believed he had been given a promise from God whose strength does not rest on the powers of man. A God who was not straining to call the entire universe into existence. A God who could breathe the very breath of life into man without blinking. A God whose promises are true and it is sooner that the sun would not rise in the morning than his promises not come to pass. Church, and this God is merciful. He chooses to display his power by setting his love and blessing on lowly creatures like us. So with every breath Abraham drew, he didn't count God's fulfillment, his promise as less and less likely, as further and further gone. He, being strengthened by faith, could grow stronger, knowing that God's promise was closer and closer with every passing minute. Though his body dwindled, God's promise remained unshaken. Though his powers waned, God's power was as strong as ever. And though you would expect him to be weakened by such a bleak reality, he was strengthened by faith as he believed. And finally, we get to read the result in verse 22. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. God looked down from heaven. God looked down and said, you are no longer my enemy, but you may stand before me as one without sin, clothed in the very righteousness of Christ, because I have counted it to you. It's done. Why? On what grounds? By the gift of faith. Abraham believed. Period. He believed. Not believed and. Believed and kept the law? No. Believe and was properly circumcised? No. Believe and was born into the right family? No. He was born a Chaldean. Believed and had perfect church attendance? Not a chance. Believe and had a good quiet time each day? False. Believed and studied to ensure he had the right doctrines? Negative, ghostwriter. Believed and Stayed away from the bad sins long enough to prove himself? Not a chance. There's no believed and. If you want to be right with God, simply believe. We let this truth become so commonplace that we're dull to it, church. I'm so thankful. John 3.16 is memorized by so many, right? You could probably complete the verse. When I point to you, right? Say the word, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever... Yes, loud, that whosoever, yes, in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you ever stop to think what's not in that verse? 
We don't, like, what's not in there? There's no mention of what you bring. There's no mention of what you do or what you are. You believe through the faith that God himself has given you to do. I want to close with a parable from Luke 18, where Jesus gives us, like, just a magnificent picture of what this act looks like. All right, I'm going to read Luke 18. You don't have to turn there. Uh, Now, they were bringing even infants to Jesus that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall never enter it. So who gets to be a part of Christ's kingdom? Who might be made righteous enough to stand before the great high king as a subject of the kingdom? One who receives it like a child. I have a one-year-old named Luke. And like many of yours, I'm sure, Luke loves goldfish snacks, right? Like, you know those little orange crackers shaped like fish? And my kids are pretty ordinary in most respects. Spoiler alert, yours are too. But I don't think this kid... I think this kid might have extraordinary powers when it comes to goldfish, okay? So he can be across the house wrestling with his brothers and sisters while we're playing music. My wife is vacuuming. There's an airplane flying overhead, and my neighbor is blowing leaves off his driveway because he does it for an hour a day, right? Do you have that neighbor too? Every day, blowing leaves. And despite all this noise, as soon as I get that goldfish cracker carton out, and he hears the rattle, boom, he's across the house at my side, like, hey, I want some of this. And with great enthusiasm, what does my one-year-old do? He reaches up, he gets on his toes, tries to climb the cabinet. What happens? Like, he can't get up to where the goldfish are. So then as a father, I delight in what happens next. My son turns to me, reaches out his hands, he does his hands like this and says, up. And he knows I love him. He knows it makes me smile to watch him enjoy his goldfish. And he knows there's no way he's making it to the top of that counter if I don't pick him up. Does he come transactionally? Hey, Dad, I'll give you my toy truck if you pick me up. No. Does he come bringing his works? Hey, Dad, I cleaned my room twice today. I'm doing pretty good. I think you ought to pick me up. No. He comes saying what? You're a loving father, and you care for me, and you pick me up when I ask. That is the faith of a child, church, to simply recognize your own helplessness and your heavenly father's goodness and powers, and you run to him, and you ask him to pick you up. Why does Paul spend three chapters in Romans telling us you stand condemned and you stand condemned? Why does he go to such great lengths to destroy, like utterly destroy, every hope we have? It's the very same reason God brought Abraham to 100 years old with a barren wife. Because like Abraham, God wants us to believe. He wants us to see our miserable state, look up and cry out, I have no other hope. I must be picked up, and I am utterly incapable of doing this myself. I will never be able to escape this condemnation. I will never be able to make myself righteous. I will never be able to stand before God on my own. So like a child, I am reaching up by faith alone, believing you are the God who saves. Church, if we cry out to our God in faith, 
believing in him, praise God, he will save you. And he will keep saving you. What more could we ask for? So the application, the call, it's as simple as it gets. Like we are eager to run to our work. What can I do? Do you know what you can do today? Believe in the one who does the work. Believe and run to him with your arms up like a child that he may do the work and behold him and what he does. Believe today, church. So the band is going to come up as we're closing. I'm going to go ahead and pray. God, thank you that you are a God who has worked it out for us. You did not leave us to do the work. But God, you make the promise sure. You count us as righteous by what you have done. God, we are thankful to you for that. And Lord, every place where we would seek to bring you something, where we would seek to justify self, where we would seek to say, yeah, I know you got it, but I just want to do this one thing. God, break those down, that we would come to you with the faith like a child, believing that you are the God of the universe who makes your promises right and that we may join you in that by believing in faith, Lord. Amen.